We have messy, broken human heroes. So often we hold him up as this hero of great faith, and yet he is a messy, broken person in need of not just a human hero, but he needs something bigger and greater. He's as much a human as he is a hero. You don't need a perfect hero. You need a perfect God, and that's who you have. And regardless of the season that you are in, he's working to heal and rescue you. Good morning, everyone. Welcome once again to Christ Church. We are a church about lifting lives, elevating Christ, a church for those who are not here yet. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Nathan. I'm a vicar here at Christ Church, which is a fancy way of saying pastor in training. Today, we are continuing our message series, God of the Underdog. We're looking at these different stories from the Bible about how God stands with and for underdogs. Most famously, we looked at David, for example, in the David versus Goliath underdog story, this classic underdog story where this little boy takes down this giant. When we think about underdogs, that's kind of where our mind usually goes. But it's not just about how God stands with and protects the underdogs, but it's also about how God works through these unlikely, unexpected people as well. And the underdog we're looking at today is a great example of this, someone who God works through, this unlikely character who God ends up working through. And this unlikely character is John. Now, John goes by a couple names in the Bible or really in the church as we talk about John. He's known as John the Disciple or John the Apostle or the Beloved Disciple because in his own gospel, he refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Um, and so there's a couple names we'll hear when we're talking about John. And John is this underdog character. He becomes one of Jesus' 12 disciples, hence the name John the Disciple, one of Jesus' 12 disciples. But of those 12, it's traditionally understood that he was probably the youngest of these disciples. And these disciples uh, ranged in age from 13 up to somewhere, somewhere around 30. Right? Scholars think that's the range they could have been in. And since John was probably the youngest of these disciples, he's probably on that younger age. So he's probably a teenager when he first follows Jesus. So he's this teenager who leaves all he knows, all he has to follow Jesus. And he ends up doing great things in his ministry as well. So God works through this unlikely character, this unlikely teenage fisherman John to do these incredible things. And John, as I mentioned, was a fisherman. There's a story in Matthew about when John was first called to be Jesus' disciple. Now, this story takes place right after the story of Peter and Andrew being called by Jesus. P Jesus comes up to Peter and Andrew and says, I will teach you to become fishers of men. See, they are fishermen. They fish, fish, of course. But now Jesus calls them and says, follow me, and you can become fishers of people. And Peter and his brother Andrew do. And then Jesus walks up the shore a little farther, and he sees two other brothers, James and John, sitting in a boat with their father Zebedee, repairing their nets. And he called them to come too. Now, if you were here last week, you might recognize the name James. This is not James, brother of Jesus, who we talked about last week. This is, known, this is James the Great or James the Disciple. This is John's brother, James, who is one of the 12 disciples of Jesus. And of course, his brother, John the Disciple, who we are focusing on today. 
but they are repairing their nets, and Jesus calls them to follow him too. Follow me, and I will teach you to become fishers of people. And what they do is crazy. What they do is nuts. This is a crazy thing to do. This guy you just met, who you haven't, you know, haven't seen, you haven't probably heard all of the amazing things he was to do in the future. He's not known for his miracles yet. He's not known for his healing and his teaching yet. They are just first meeting this guy. But because of their faith, they immediately followed him, leaving the boat and their father far behind, leaving what they know, leaving their income, leaving the way they feed themselves, leaving their security and their comfort behind. And so James and, of course, John and Peter and Andrew, too, they follow Jesus. And eight other disciples come along, and John follows Jesus throughout his life. He's kind of in the, the big three disciples. If, if Jesus had kind of an inner circle of disciples, right, he had the 12. But then there was this inner circle of disciples, this big three, which was Peter, James, and John. They were present at the transfiguration. These were, these were the three disciples who Jesus probably spent the most time with, and John was one of them. And John, after Jesus died and was resurrected and ascended into heaven, continued his ministry. He continued doing these incredible things, spending time in Ephesus, leading a church there, starting this school of discipling people known as the Johannine community. And it's traditionally understood that he wrote five books of the Bible. We have the Gospel of John, the story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. There's four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. John wrote one of them. He also has these three epistles, which he probably wrote when he was in Ephesus, and they're 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, primarily to combat one of the biggest heresies of the time, to teach people good theology, and he wrote Revelation. When he was exiled on Patmos, right, for being a Christian, for teaching others about Jesus, Rome didn't like that all the time, and so they spent John into exile to this island, Patmos, and there he received this vision from God about what was to come, about the future about the end times. And we have that today recorded in the book of Revelation. So five out of the 27 books of the New Testament, 20% or so, a little less than that, of the New Testament was written by John. And so this teenage fisherman, this underdog, this teenage fisherman becomes one of the most important people in terms of developing our faith and our theology and our understanding of who God is. And God worked through John this whole way. But John is not John the Baptist. We said he has a bunch of names, right? John the Apostle, John the Disciple. But he's not John the Baptist. That's another character from the Bible, incredible character from the Bible. You can read all about him. He does, he does incredible work. And, and so you can read all about him, but it is not who we're focusing on today. And so just want to clarify, we're focusing on John the Disciple, John the Apostle, John who is one of the twelve. And we're focusing on one story from John's life. And if we're focusing on one story from John's life, and it's coming to us from a gospel, it makes sense to which gospel we're going to look at, right? And that, of course, is the gospel of Matthew. It says, Then the mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus with her sons. She knelt respectfully to ask for a favor. And so James and John's mom comes to Jesus, and she wants to ask Jesus something on behalf of her sons, on behalf of James and John. Now, something to note, the first story we looked at was in Matthew 4. This is in Matthew 20, and so we've moved from literally the very beginning of Jesus's ministry, one of the first things he does, to now 
We're getting towards the end. It's not too long after this that Jesus is crucified and resurrected. And so we are getting towards the end. So James and John have now spent about three years traveling with Jesus, spending time with Jesus, teaching people with Jesus. They, they started kind of just watching Jesus do ministry and helping him along the way. Now it's kind of shifted to they're doing the ministry while Jesus helps them. And so it's gone from these teenage fishermen to these really influential and important people in the early church. And so James and John's mom wants to ask Jesus something on, behelp, on, on behalf of her sons. What is your request, Jesus asked. She replied, in your kingdom, please let my two sons sit in places of honor next to you, one on your right and the other on your left. Of course, in a kingdom, the closer you sit to the king, the more powerful you are, the more influential you are, the more, the more honored you are. Right? They're, they're places of honor. They're the important places to sit. And so she wants what is best for her children. She wants what's best for her sons. She thinks she's doing the right thing. Right? Jesus, these are, these are two of your disciples. They're two of your like, inner circle three. Right? Can you have them sit one on each side of you so they can continue in their wonderful ministry and their wonderful influence? But James and John's mom is thinking of this kingdom differently than Jesus is. You see, to her, she was thinking of an earthly kingdom. Jesus is king, after all, and he came as the Messiah. But what the Jewish people thought the Messiah was, was this earthly king, this warrior king who had come to conquer the Jewish people's enemies, namely Rome. They had come to conquer Rome and that he would rule over Israel, who is now autonomous and now has their own power. But that's not what Jesus came to do. Yes, he came to conquer over the Jewish people's enemies, but primarily that was sin and death and evil. And the kingdom that Jesus is talking about isn't necessarily an earthly kingdom. See, when Jesus talks about this kingdom of God or this kingdom of heaven, this phrase that appears time and time again throughout the Gospels, what he's referring to is where God reigns. You see, the kingdom of God is where God reigns. Now, this can be earthly because God certainly reigns here on earth, but he reigns in heaven too. And so in Jesus's kingdom, the kingdom of God, God reigns. And the kingdom of God is already here. The kingdom of God is already here. Jesus has already died to death and sin. He's already conquered over the grave. And so the kingdom of God, God is already reigning in this world. But when we talk about the kingdom of God, we talk about it using this phrase, already but not yet. Because even though it's already here, it is not yet complete. Because even though Jesus and God reign, there's still evil in this world. There's still sin and brokenness that reign in the lives of people, too. So the kingdom of God is already here, but not yet complete. And so when she asks, in your kingdom, please let my two sons sit in places of honor next to you, she doesn't even really know what she's asking for. But Jesus answered by saying to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering I'm about to drink? Oh, yes, they replied. We are able. And this is 
interesting to me. This is funny to me, honestly, because when you first read the story, you hear, oh, James and John's mom goes to Jesus and asks for something. And it sounds like she pulled Jesus off to the side, right? They, they, she cornered Jesus, got him alone to ask him this question. But no, Jesus is talking to them, and they replied, meaning James and John were there too. And so it, it kind of reads to me that they were kind of using their mom to ask for this favor on behalf of themselves. But what Jesus asked them is, are you able to drink from the bitter cup of suffering I'm about to drink? This idea of drinking from a cup of suffering was a common idiom at the time. And Jesus, of course, is referring to his very obvious upcoming suffering of his crucifixion. But when James and John reply, yes, we are able, they're being truthful. Because of the 12 disciples, 11 of them are traditionally in church history understood to have gone to an early grave, to died for their belief in Jesus. Now, John was the one who didn't go to an early grave, but he certainly didn't live an easy life being exiled and spending time in persecution and all the trouble that he went through too. And so when they say, yes, we are able, they're being truthful about being able to drink from this cup of suffering. And Jesus agrees. He tells them, you will indeed drink from my bitter cup, but I have no right to say who will sit on my right or on my left. My Father has prepared those places for the ones he has chosen. You see, this is interesting because Jesus is king. Jesus is the king. Jesus is the one who reigns. Right? It is Jesus' kingdom. And yet Jesus shows humility. He humbles himself and says, no, I don't decide these things. My father does. Jesus chooses to allow his father to make up his mind about those things. And of course, Jesus probably isn't even happy with James and John for asking this question at all. Because in Jesus' kingdom, it's not about making yourself as powerful, as important as possible. In fact, it is about the opposite. It is about humbling yourself. You see, Jesus himself demonstrates this by saying, it's not my, my call, it is my Father's. And in fact, Jesus himself is the greatest example of humility we have. We celebrate Christmas, this incarnation, this miracle of God becoming human, becoming like us. And that is maybe the greatest example of humility we have. That Jesus, this God, this all-powerful figure, chose to enter into this world to be like us. And not to be this earthly king, yes, to be the king, but to be the servant king who goes around teaching people and washing people's feet and healing people. Not to make himself look as powerful as possible. And so that is what the kingdom of God is supposed to be about. But when the other ten disciples heard what James and John had asked, they were indignant. They were upset. And of course they would be. I would be too. But Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers in this world lord it over all their people, and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. You see, in earthly kingdoms, right, especially at this time, but today too, right, the most powerful want to be served. Right? They want people to look upon them and build them up and, and make them even more powerful and even more wealthy. 
that's not what the kingdom of God is about. Instead, but among you, it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. The first shall be last. And whoever wants to be first among you must become your slave. For even the Son of Man, that's how Jesus often refers to himself, came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus didn't come to be served, but to serve. He came into this world. He humbled himself, became like us to serve us, to teach us, to heal us, to redeem us. He became like us and humbled himself to die on a cross for us and to conquer over death for us. Right, God himself humbled himself so much that he chose to die for you. And that is what God's kingdom is all about. You see, if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, what you are called to do then is to be humble. Not to build yourself up, not to make yourself powerful, not to make yourself as rich or as famous as possible, but to be humble, to follow the example of Jesus and humble ourselves. There's a great uh, teaching from the Bible, from Matthew 5, which is this famous sermon that Jesus gives. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. And in it, he's teaching these crowds, he's teaching his disciples, all these different things. But it opens with this teaching about what the kingdom of God is, what the kingdom of heaven is like. And it's called the Beatitudes, and it talks about how God blesses the humble in his kingdom. This comes from Matthew 5, verses 3 through 12. It reads, God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit the whole earth. God blesses those who hunger and thirst for justice, for they will be satisfied. God blesses those who are merciful, for they will be shown mercy. God blesses those whose hearts are pure, for they will see God. God blesses those who work for peace, for they will be called the children of God. God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things about you because you are my followers. Be happy about it. Be very glad, for great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember, the ancient prophets were persecuted in the same way. This teaching, the Beatitudes, these God's blessings remind us to be humble. It doesn't say God blesses the rich, the famous, the popular, the powerful. In earthly kingdoms, that's how it went. And even at this time, and it existed today, but especially at this time, there was bad theology. There was this thought that if your life was going well, if you were healthy and you were wealthy, well, then God is blessing you. You've earned some kind of reward from God. But if you were sick, right, if things weren't going right for you, if you were poor, well, that must mean God's punishing you. You must have done something wrong and God is punishing you for it. Now, this is bad theology, and Jesus combats this here by saying, no, God blesses the poor in spirit. God blesses the meek. God blesses the humble. God blesses those who are persecuted. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. See, in God's kingdom, it is this upside-down kingdom. 
where humility is what we should be after. And one of the best ways we can be humble is to serve one another. We serve one another, we, by the very nature of service, lower ourselves and put others above ourselves. By placing other people's needs above ourselves, we have lowered ourselves in order to serve them. And so in order to be humble, in order to serve, there's plenty of ways that we can do it. Right? There's plenty of service opportunities around church. You can greet people. You can serve communion. You can work in tech. There's, there's so many service opportunities. They work with the kids. There's so many service opportunities. I can't possibly list them all here. But you don't have to serve at church. There's other areas you can, please do serve at church, but there's other areas that you can serve too. You can serve out in the community, right, with our strategic partners here that we have at Christ Church, or with just other organizations that you're involved in. And you don't even have to serve, like, in professional, like, service opportunity capacities. We serve by the very nature of the things we do and how we live in our day-to-day lives as well. Right? We serve when we put others above ourselves in our everyday. We serve maybe it's just by holding a door an extra second open for someone, by holding an elevator. We serve by seeing some trash and picking it up and making the world cleaner. We serve in all these variety of ways. We can serve our friends and our family too by being there when they're in struggle, by being them and helping them when they have this time of need. Right? We are called to serve. But among you it will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. In order to lead, or have influence, or to lead how Jesus leads, we're called to serve. And all of this flows out of one thing, out of love. When Jesus had asked, what is the greatest commandment? He says, love the Lord your God and love the neighbor as yourself. Love God and love others. In order to love God and to love others, by its very nature, we humble ourselves. By the very nature of love, we serve one another. Not the most famous verse in the Bible, but John learned this throughout his time throughout his time working with Jesus, throughout his time teaching with Jesus and healing people alongside Jesus and serving alongside Jesus and after Jesus was gone for many, many years too. John learned this lesson of love. And I don't, this isn't the most famous verse in the Bible, that's John 3.16, but in his letter, 1 John 3.16, John writes what I think is one of the most powerful verses in the Bible. He says, we know what real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us. So we also ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. We know what love is because of what Jesus has done for us. Because of Jesus' humility. Because Jesus entered into the world to die for you. You can do the same for others. You can love others. Now hopefully this doesn't mean death. Hopefully this doesn't mean crucifixion for you. But when we love others, by the very nature of love, we're sacrificing ourselves. Right? We are, we are making ourselves lower. We're humbling ourselves. We're serving one another by putting others' needs above ourselves. That is what love is. Love is this sacrificial, service-oriented humility that Jesus calls us to. And so when we look at John's life, what can we learn from this underdog? 
we can learn that in order to be great in the kingdom of heaven, we ought to be humble, we ought to serve one another, we ought to love. Love God, love our neighbors as ourselves. And we can do this not by our own strength, but because of the love that Jesus first showed to us. Let's pray. Almighty, gracious God, Jesus, we love you. We praise you. We thank you so much, Jesus, that you chose to be humble. That instead of staying as just God, you chose to be human and be like us, to humble yourselves in order to serve us and in order to love us as well. We pray that we are reminded in moments in our lives to love others how you have first loved us, to see your examples of humility and service and to emulate that. God, in moments where we can humble ourselves, in moments where we can serve, moments where we can love, help us to see clearly those opportunities. Make them obvious to us. Present them obviously to us. And give us the courage to act in those moments, to truly be humble and to serve and to love one another. Jesus, once again, we praise you so much that you chose to be humble and you chose to die for us. Help this sacrifice inspire us and change us and redeem us so that we can love others how you first loved us. We love you, Jesus. We praise you. We praise these things in your holy name. Amen.